welcome to a very special and quite noisy edition of Tech Tent, your weekly status update on the world of tech and business. This week we've taken our virtual tent on the road for the first time. We're at the UK's Big Bang Fair in Birmingham. It's an engineering and tech exhibition for young people. I'm joined this week by Carolyn Rice. Hello, Rory. And Jane Wakefield. Hello. Both from our tech team. And we've two very special guests here with us. Former astronaut John McBride from the Kennedy Space Center. Hello, all. Uh, he flew the Space Shuttle Challenger on what was only the 13th shuttle mission and after a long career with NASA went on to become a businessman in venture capital. And also with us, Maggie Liu. Hello world. Who hasn't been into space yet but has plans to travel all the way to Mars. Maggie's doing a doctorate in astronomy at the University... Astrophysics actually, isn't it? Astrophysics. Astrophysics at the University of Birmingham. And she's applied to travel on the privately funded Mars One project which aims to establish the first human settlement on the Red Planet in 2023. And that, to cut a long story short, is why you heard from Gustav Holst's The Planets at the beginning uh, of the programme. First of all, though, this week, how easy is it to encourage the younger generation to take an interest in technology and maybe make a career or a business out of it? That's what governments around the world are trying to do, and that's what this whole event we're at today is all about. Before we go to some of the teenagers here, let's speak to the slightly older folks around the table and find out how they got into tech for the first time. I want one line from e each of you. John McBride, first of all, the astronaut. I uh, was inspired to get into space and tech and all those kind of things by the early folks like Alan Shepard and Yuri Gagarin and John Glenn and all those guys from America Russia really kicked off the space program. The first astronauts. And Maggie Liu, what, what inspired you? I was inspired by my um, secondary school science club and just doing um, activities with them. Uh, Carolyn Rice, uh, you're, a, you're a, a distinguished BBC writer now. How, how on earth did you get into this? Um, well, a bit like Maggie, I was inspired by a teacher and that led me to do some courses in computing and then I ended up training as a BBC engineer. And Jane Wakefield, uh, what was your route here? Well, I did an English degree and then I became an English teacher and I don't think there's any better route into technology <laughs> than that. And here's a terrible confession. My degree was in uh, French and German and somehow I've stumbled into technology. What a, what a brilliant, exciting world it is to be in. Anyway, I had a wander around this fair and chatted to a few of the young engineers showing off tech that they've designed. One of them was Matt Harrison from Simon Langton Grammar School. Now, his project involves writing software to control the school's telescope. Professional observatories around the world are moving away from humans controlling their telescopes and more towards computers because they're doing massive sky surveys and um, doing lots of repetitive tasks and so this makes them more efficient. We have an observatory ourselves at our school so we thought we wanted to be able to control it from home but the software that's around is really really expensive uh, so what we thought was instead of um, paying out could we make it ourselves. What kind of skills did you need to do this, coding skills? All of the uh, stuff to actually make the telescope move, that came straight from my computing GCC in terms of language, which was Visual Basic. To make the website, I had to teach myself um, some languages, so PHP and how to use databases on servers. Programming is an incredibly useful skill in today's world because everything's electronic. Using the help of people from what they've created and open source software, we can make some really, really cool stuff. You use the word cool. <laughs> it used to be seen by some people, you know, that, that there was a divide in schools and the people like you were the geeks and didn't get much respect. Do you get more respect now? Yeah, I mean, um, people in uh, sick forms. Your friend is shaking well, his head next to you. He, he, would, he would do that. <laughs> but um, no, honestly, in, in our sick form, it's, you know, people are there because they want to learn and it's, very, very academic and yeah, it's really encourages a skill and so having it is um, really very useful for getting involved in this kind of stuff. 
What's your name and what's your project? Uh, my name is Jen Cahillog and my project is called The Bump. So um, I took inspiration from a normal speed bump and um, made something that's um, also a bump but that can be used to generate electricity from moving energy of cars. What it does is that um, the car will drive over the bump, compressing all the water in the tank uh, through this narrow tunnel and there will be turbines here which can be turned by the water and used to generate electricity. Has the idea of science and engineering as a career and the fact that you know people like Mark Zuckerberg for instance have made billions out of starting companies. Has that been an inspiration to your generation, do you think? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, seeing someone to achieve, uh, achieving something from such little resources is inspiring for me. Do you think many of your generation will go into science and engineering and, and maybe even start businesses from it? I think definitely because there's so many endless um, opportunities and because I think um, currently in the school education we're learning more and more into basic principles of science. I think that could be very motivational for young people like us. Jen Cahillog there from Ellen Wilkinson School for Girls in London. I've also been speaking to 17-year-old Dan Tomlinson who's already embarked on a career in technology for a company making mobile apps. Now he found computer programming to be a refuge from the bullying he got at school. To me it was quite a bit of an escape because it gave me the chance to do so much awesome stuff. They used it as ammunition. I just thought, well, I enjoy what I do with my life. <sighs> it quite honestly kept me alive. What do you mean by that? Um, there was some quite dark times when I was quite young with school and I had thought about ending it and then discovered programming and, well, I had something to enjoy and live for. It was It was the only sort of bright thing in your life at a time of real sort of... Depression, I suppose. Yeah. What in general now do you think is people's attitudes to technology? I mean, it used to be you're on one side of the fence or another and, you know, you, you could be derided for being geeky. Is it now actually getting a bit cooler? Uh, I'd say so, yeah. With the increased use of smartphones and making technology easier for people, nowadays if people hear what I do, they think it's a really awesome thing to be able to do. Uh, and a lot of people wish they could do it and are trying to learn. Now, we're seeing quite a lot of really young people starting businesses, making huge success of them. When you think Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook when he was 21, there is a, a British teenager called Nick Deloisio who's sold his business to Yahoo as, as a teenager. Are you particularly inspired by any of those people? It does give me a bit of a drive to go and create stuff because it shows to everybody that something you start in your bedroom could potentially influence the rest of your life. And it shows that we don't need to be as founded in a rigid structure as we used to be. That's Dan Tomlinson. Let's have a quick word with our two uh, special guests about uh, getting kids interested in tech. Uh, Maggie, you're, you're still uh, pretty young. Um, do you think it is becoming cooler? Because there used to be a, a bit of a thing about geeks, didn't there? I think it's getting cooler because um, People are just seeing so much success in technology and also because um, the tuition fees at universities are increasing. So people want to spend their um, careers in more useful subjects like science and technology. They're being a bit realistic about where they make a, make a living. And uh, John McBride, you've been mobbed around here. Uh, as an astronaut, you've been mobbed by young people. Oh, it's been nonstop for the last two days with youngsters coming up and wanting to learn about my career and NASA and how they can go off to Mars. and back to the moon, all those types of things. My impression of this whole big bang right here, it's just, uh, as you would say here, brilliant in, in Britain because it really 
ties the things they see and feel in the classroom to the reality of what it's like out there in the big world. So and all the things they see right here just can connect those two. Okay, thanks. We'll, we'll have more from our guests when we come to our space item later. But first, to the tech desk, our look at the other big stories of the week. Now, Carolyn Rice, uh, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg appears to be at war with his own government over surveillance. <laughs> Yes, he um, had a bit of a hotline to President Obama this week, Mark Zuckerberg did. He, he rang him up and expressed frustration over US digital surveillance. Now, this came after some reports that America's National Security Agency had masqueraded uh, as a Facebook server to infect some of their target's computers. And Zuckerberg was very, very cross about this. Um, I must say, the NSA say these reports aren't accurate. But Zuckerberg says the gov government needs to be much more transparent about what it's doing. But after the conversation, it said it looks like it will be a long time before reform takes place. Yeah, I mean, he has got a hotline to the president. Not all of us can do that. But, mm. uh, but also, the whole Silicon Valley has been a, really at war with the Obama administration over recent months about a lot of this. Yeah, definitely. It? Lots of the companies have joined together to sort of form a group to put pressure on the government to reform. But it, as he says after this conversation, it's not going to happen quickly. And I also saw Tim Berners-Lee uh, on the 25th anniversary of the web calling for a Magna Carta, uh, a, a charter in every country to protect uh, the freedom of the web. Um, Jane Wakefield uh, reports just in the last few hours that Russia has started blocking some websites. What, what's that about? Yes, this is four websites. One that's run by the leader of the opposition, a blog of his, a couple of news sites, and one run by Gary Kasparov, the ex-chess player. Uh, and the complaint is that they're staging illegal protests and there's laws being passed in Russia that allow the government to kind of crack down on these sort of sites recently. So in that respect, you know, it's completely official. But of course, uh, there's lots of ways of getting around these blocks. And as soon as the news came out, people started publishing ways you could get onto the sites anyway. Interesting. Freedom versus kind of uh, control on the web. Uh, and Carolyn, briefly, there's been a big shift people have noticed in, in the gaming industry and how that works. Yes, that's right. There, in the L London in the UK this week, there was a big BAFTA Video Games Awards, but there's definitely been a shift from the east of Japan into the west, and the Brits and the Americans are really going forward and, and becoming the champions of video gaming. And one quick uh, thought from, from Jane about a, another little space story. Yeah, this is the interesting idea that NASA is asking coders to help them design better code so that they can search through all the masses of data that they get from their ground telescopes to help spot asteroids and, and maybe eventually stop one crashing into Earth. Space is a really hot topic right now, as you'll be hearing in a moment. If you've just joined us, welcome. You're listening to Tech Tent from the BBC World Service. I'm Rory Kathleen-Jones, and we're live from the UK's Big Bang Fair in Birmingham. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grave. So, who's that? Uh, that's Commander Hadfield, isn't it, Maggie? Our special guest. Yeah, he's a really ins inspiring character for reaching out to kids and getting them into science. S singing uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity from the, from the International Space Oddity. So, is space cool uh, again? It's now more than 40 years since man walked on the moon. The final space shuttle mission was uh, three years ago. Our guest, John McBride, uh, piloted the shuttle in 1984. And NASA's investment in space travel has really dived over the years, much lower priority. But now the private sector is looking into space. All sorts of ventures, 
from Virgin Galactic's plans to take very wealthy people on a two-hour trip into space to the even more ambitious Mars One plan to establish a colony on the Red Planet. And so we've still got our astronaut John McBride here and our aspiring Martian, Maggie Lou. But let's first talk to our BBC space, uh, specialist, John Amos, who joins us from another planet, New Broadcasting House in London. Hello, John. I'm off-world, Rory, off-world. <laughs> John, take us through these various uh, private sector space ventures and what, what chance they have. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting time, actually, to, to be covering this topic. Um, probably uh, the most interesting since uh, the Apollo era itself, which was, was very, very exciting. But we're starting to see the emergence of space companies, private companies, taking the arena of space very, very seriously. I mean, you've, you've mentioned a, a couple of the ideas there, Virgin Galactic, Mars One, company that uh, is starting to get a lot of traction with people. The public is uh, SpaceX, of course, this company that is selling rocket services uh, to NASA and probably very soon uh, to the United States Air Force to, to put up spy satellites uh, for the American government. But there are a whole host of other companies, many of them coming with uh, Silicon Valley uh, expertise or background, wanting to try something new in the arena uh, of space. There's companies like Sp Skybox Imaging, which has just got a video camera that they've put up in, in orbit and it's going to send down video of uh, natural disasters, big news events. We'll see it on the BBC probably. There's a company called Earthcast doing something very similar. They've put a, a video camera on the back end of the space station. These types of things we're going to see more and more. You know your mobile phone. <laughs> That's driven by a space application. It's called SatNav. Many of the apps in your phone are the result of space technology. And it's just going to increase, Rory. It is, but, but, but briefly, John, do, do the numbers add up? Where are people actually going to make this, this happen? Because a lot of these things have been promised. For a lot of these ventures are, are way behind schedule. Do, do the numbers stack up for them? OK, so it's, it's, it's incremental, yes. Uh, one of the benefits is when big government suddenly gives its data away for free. That is, that is transformatory. If you look at SatNav, um, we now get that from, for free from the, uh, from the US government, the GPS data. The European uh, governments are going to give their Galileo data away free as well. A lot of these data products are coming in machine-readable formats so that everybody can use them. That's very, very important. Um, Europe actually is about to put up a, a big Earth observation system. It's spending 7.5 billion euros over the next uh, five or six oh. years, and that's all free. Thanks, John. That's, uh, that's all uh, great stuff. Now, John McBride, our, our astronaut, how do you see these? You, you came from an era where the American government was prepared to spend billions. Are any of these private sector ventures really going to take off? Well, I think they are, and you'll see it here in the next year or two. Obviously, they'd wanted to get it started much earlier than... I think they're trying to still shoot for September for Sir Richard Branson's flights, but I, they may slide. It's, and we heard earlier, John, talking about, you know, uh, we don't want people to rush into this privatization of commercialization of space. The last thing we want to see is somebody go up and hurt a bunch of people, which would put it back another decade or two. So they got not to approach this thing cavalierly. They've got to be very professional with it and not make any mistakes because uh, that could run the whole commercialization effort. I, I firmly believe in it. I think it's time that the commercial people jump into this low-Earth orbit business and get it running up and running and make some money from it and profit. Now, one area that they could make money, you'd think, was from very fast uh, suborbital travel, being able to go from uh, London to Sydney in a couple of hours. Well, we've been studying that concept for 20 or 30 years, and it's just a matter of uh, 
funding. I think it's possible. It's all possible to get from London to China in one hour and those types of things. But we've got to still, still work in the future on because you, you could have done that in oh, theory yeah, in the have, shuttle. Couldn't we you? could have done well. A shuttle could go around. It goes around every hour and a half, and conceivably you could launch and land after launch from Kennedy Space Center. We're over Australia in 45 minutes. So the. It's, it's possible. Ma Maggie Lou, tell us about the, 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 the trip to Mars. It's a one-way trip to Mars that you've signed up for. Why? Well, I just think it's a great opportunity to do something amazing. It's like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that. No one's done that. And it will just inspire the entire world. It's also a world effort. So people have signed up from over 100 different countries. So it's getting people interested in science and Mars and space. Be honest, when they come to you and they say, you've made it onto the trip, you're, you're going next week, um, you won't be coming back, are you really going to step aboard that spacecraft? Yes, yes. I think um, with the rate that current technology is evolving, it won't be long there when I get there before people develop the technology to get me back as well. So you're counting on it being a return trip? I'm not counting on it, but I believe it will be. John McBride, did you ever dream of going to Mars? You didn't land on the moon, unfortunately, but you circumnavigated, you, 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 you went round the Earth. Well, I'm a little bit different, Maggie. If I'm dreaming of going, I'd love to be the first guy to go to Mars, but I'd also like to have a plan to, for a return trip. You'd That's like to idea. have that written yeah, in stone like before, before you signed yeah. up. Uh, Maggie, very briefly, what, what do your friends and family say about you going off to Mars? I think they're all really supportive, except um, it hasn't really hit home yet because it's still 10 years away. So they're like, oh, that's ages away. You might change your mind. <laughs> yeah, ten, in 10 years, I would do it probably because I'll be the age where it wouldn't really matter if I came back. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Right. I don't think I'm signing up myself. Uh, anyway, we've heard a lot recently about China's booming tech sector with domestic companies like Tencent and Xiaomi, among many others, with aspirations to compete with the US in the global market. But there's also a rush in California the bedrock of the U.S. tech industry to take advantage of new Chinese talent. Alison Van Diggelen reports from Silicon Valley. The latest wave of Chinese immigrants to Silicon Valley is impacting everything from the housing market to the way business is done in the high-tech capital of the world. Stuart Evans, a Brit who arrived in Silicon Valley 30 years ago, has been studying the unique ecosystem of Silicon Valley for decades. Today he teaches entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon Silicon Valley and says he's seen a sevenfold increase in student applications from China and Southeast Asia in the last year. It's been like a racehorse that's been choked back in the stalls and now the gate's open and the race is away and they've got some great thoroughbreds there to kick in with the best of entrepreneurs in the world. In Palo Alto, home of Stanford University, the number of home purchases by Chinese nationals has tripled since 2011. Evans mentors young entrepreneurs at InnoSpring, a Silicon Valley incubator that offers advice, funding and partnerships to fledgling Chinese startups and American ones seeking to expand in China. Evans points out there is no work-life balance in Silicon Valley. Your work is your life. He says that fits very well with the intense Chinese work ethic. Innospring founder Eugene Zhang invites me to tour the incubator during a visit by a delegation of 20 under 20 college students from Jiangsu province in China. Innospring's goal is to capture the big opportunities. Technology giants, yeah, it could be uh, the next uh, Google or you know, Baidu. Or... One of Evans's entrepreneurs is Nan Zhang, co-founder of startup Tickle, a walkie-talkie app for smartphones. He describes the Chinese mindset. 
letting go instant gratification. That's sort of just driven to my head over, over and again when I was growing up. It's like you go for what's eventually going to be good for you, not necessarily what makes you happy at the moment. That long-term view colors the way Chinese entrepreneurs run their businesses, he explains. They focus on growing market share and endure long-term negative margins. Evans says this contrasts with the short-term view of many Silicon Valley startups, which often focus on being acquired or going public within two years. I think the idea of bringing up a baby and teaching it how to walk and learn as the company sort of progresses is something that fits very well in the Chinese culture. Whether that longer-term view takes root in Silicon Valley remains to be seen, but some influences already go both ways. The Silicon Valley is, is, is sort of culturally really diverse and intellectually homogenous. It's a very uh, heavily networked ecosystem where everybody knows everybody else and, and what works kind of comes to the surface very quickly. But instead of a clash of cultures, Evans says there's a melding, creating what he calls a global mosaic of talent. I suggest the innovative melding that goes on in Silicon Valley produces a special Asian fusion, a bit like the fortune cookie, a Japanese-American creation that's largely known as Chinese. What do you think about this idea? About <laughs> An Asian fusion fortune cookie, well, the idea of fusion is something which is part of Silicon Valley's DNA. Um, and it's in the sharing and pooling and the melding, is, you know, to use your word, that brings about the innovations in Silicon Valley. That report from Alison Van Diggelen in Silicon Valley. Well, uh, our special guest, John McBride, uh, what, what's your view on the Chinese uh, efforts in space? Well, I, I was president for the astronauts and cosmonauts and now taikonauts of the world for three years, and I've, I've met all the Chinese flyers, and the last time I spoke with them a couple of years ago, they were planning on their presence human presence on the moon by 2018, and if that happens, that's kind of where the Americans were back in the early 60s. They'll be kind of dominant presence in space, and if they do that, really, by the end of this decade, you can almost plan they'll be on Mars by 2030. So. A new space race. It used to be the US v. Russia. Yeah, but we'll be kind of sitting back and watching them if they get that much of a leg up on us. And briefly, Maggie, um, still still excited about space? You're, you're an astronomer, a young astronomer. Yeah, there's so much to be done in space. It's just it going to ever expand. There's, there's asteroid missions, people going up to mine asteroids. There's Mars missions. There's so much to be excited for. Absolutely. Well, we're just running out of time. Thanks again to our special guests, Captain John McBride from the Kennedy Space Centre and Maggie Liu from the Astronomy and Space Research Group at the University of Birmingham. And thanks to our own Carolyn Rice and Jane Wakefield. And to you for listening to us from uh, the very noisy Big Bang Fair, which is uh, just winding down for the day. Join us again in the Tech Tent next time.